Hello, and welcome to The Quantum Divide. This is the podcast that talks about the literal divide between classical IT and quantum technology, and the fact that these two domains are, will, and need to become closer together. Quantum networking actually is more futuristic than perhaps the computing element of it, but we're going to try and focus on that domain. But we're bound to experience many different tangents, both in podcast topics and conversation as we go on. Enjoy. Good day and welcome to the Quantum Divide. This is episode six. We're really flying through them, Steve. Well done. Good effort. Yeah, the plan of one of my just quickly changed, I think. <laughs> um, maybe we'll fall back on that in due course. Yeah. Um, Listen, this week's podcast is going to be really interesting for me because it's a bit of a, a dark art. Um, quantum machine learning for me is a combination of two fascinating topics of which I know fairly little about. So uh, it feels quite um, sci-fi for me. And I'm sure you get that all the time, Santanu. But let me just introduce Santanu, who's joining us uh, today. I feel like there's a mega brain in the room. That's the only thing, that's all I can say. <laughs> Where w- When you've got a, a list of different master's degrees you've got and you're studying for a PhD and, and so on, as well as working as a, as a researcher, yeah, I'm just looking forward to, to hearing you talk, Santoni, and, and have this conversation with you. So thanks again for joining. An MSc in Observational Astrophysics, an MSc in Mathematics, and you're studying machine learning, quantum machine learning, in fact. Yeah, why, why don't I let you just give, give an intro, and then perhaps if you could start with a bit of a, a high-level view of what is quantum machine learning, and then we'll take it from there. Oh, thank you. Uh, thanks a lot for the kind words and thanks for your time and for inviting me to this uh, amazing podcast. Um, as you're well aware, we used to be ex-colleagues, so um, I'm really flattered by your kind words that you did not speak of the truth. <laughs> and as for Mega Brain, you are absolutely right. There is one right there. I can see Stephen. Um, so thanks a lot for, for being here. Yeah, to go right into it, what is quantum machine learning? That is that is a tough question to answer right now. <laughs> so, so as the industry looks at quantum machine learning right now, there are actually four broad classification or types of quantum machine learning. So, for example, I'm going to quote a figure. Obviously, this is a podcast record. Oh, show the figure. But it came out in a book by Maria Schuld, and she basically defined four different, there's a matrix, so she defined four different types. So the first one was CC. So this is basically a classical, so classical data, classical computing. And this is where quantum-inspired methods come into the play. And in this subcategory, what it addresses is a purely classical algorithms, which processes purely classical data. Now, the question is, so what does that have to do with quantum? If it's classical and classical, there's nothing to do with quantum. And that is a good question. But before I get into too much detail, there are some ideas from quantum computing and quantum information science where people have figured out that people have figured out how to strip out uh, a lot of the complexities offered by quantum mechanics. 
So what we are left with is a classical idea or algorithm that has its origins in quantum. Hence, quantum inspired. And this is very important. The reason I jumped into it and, and the terminology is something probably will flesh out as we talk. But quantum inspired is very important as we speak right now. One of the reasons quantum machine learning started to grow out of quantum computing is because of the power of superposition and entanglement that is offered. So if you look at classical machine learning, a lot of stuff, if not most of the stuff, is not really deterministic. There's a lot of probability at play. And at the end of the day, any classical machine learning problem is an optimization problem. And hence, that is where quantum machine learning comes into play. If you look at the properties of superposition, for example, that offers a multidimensional way of addressing certain things that in classical binary machine learning would take up a lot of computational cost, so to speak. And this is also very important. So yes, that's why quantum machine learning, very high level thoughts, because machine learning has a lot of probability, probabilistic stuff in there. You do cost optimization of cost functions, for example, you do gradient descent, and all these are mathematical stuff. And all these, it turns out, can be actually done better, sometimes, not always, sometimes, with options of pulling in quantum machine learning. Now, going back to where I was with, the, with what is quantum machine learning, I spoke about CC, classical data for classical algorithms. The next one that's in the matrix is classical data, but quantum algorithms, which is where quantum machine learning is today. So this is quantum enhanced machine learning, so to speak. This is where we are, because most of the realistic data we have today that is being tested, let's say, or in, in, in research papers, everywhere else is, is largely classical, classical data. So the main idea is you take classical data, embed it into quantum computers through the use of I should not say quantum circuits because there is this philosophy also works in, for example, an annealing platforms, which is the UF systems, for example. So basically encode it into a quantum state and then process that classical data in some way inside of a quantum computer. That's the broad part of it. The fourth one and down the matrix is quantum data and classical algorithms. In other words, machine learning for physics. That's, a, that's an example. Or machine learning for chemistry, right? And again, this is a very important area where the next one that I'll talk about will actually offers a lot of advantage. So this is about applying classical ML algorithms to process data from quantum computers. So whatever data we can actually extract on a quantum computer by measurement, we run it through a classical ML algorithm 
And that, that makes our life a lot easier because we understand the classical level algorithm. And as, as well, as soon as we measure data in a quantum computer, the quantum states collapse and the data become classical anyway, so to speak. The fourth one and the last one is quantum data for quantum algorithms. And that is quantum learning. And this is the most important perspective. This is the most important subcategory or category from the perspective of basically research in QML. It focuses on quantum algorithms, which process data encoded as quantum states. So here we typically assume that this data is given to us that is actually quantum data. In other words, data out of chemistry, let's say, or molecular model that is already quantum in a quantum state. So the data comes to us in a quantum state arising from a quantum environment, could be molecular modeling, like I said, could be a quantum sensor. And then it is given to us over a quantum network, which is where Stephen is the group. And hence the importance of the QQ, the last matrix part. Now, in this area, there are several research going on and some seminal papers have been written, especially re relevant to quantum sensors. So a few of them is by Zhang and Zhuang of University of Arizona. I think uh, Stephen might, might be familiar with them. So basically, they have been doing research on taking sensor data in quantum state and running them through quantum algorithms, something that, that we call virtual quantum algorithms, which is not 100% quantum. There is a classical part to it. So they basically do iterations. The output is basically classical. It then, it then gets applied to classical machine learning algorithms, something like SVM, support vector machines, and then is it fed back into the VQA process again. And then you can basically classify classify the, the quantum data. That, that's one way of doing it. But why am I rambling about this? I'm rambling about this because, of, because this is a very, in my humble opinion, this is a very important work. Cisco is looking at quantum networking. Now, yes, they're looking at it at a physical level in terms of quantum routers or switches or whatever else you have. But sooner or later, once you, People have to start thinking about protocol and handling, which is where Stephen is, I think. Sooner or later, people have to start thinking about, okay, I have got a net quantum network. There's 500 people. How do I know that Dan's data is going to Stephen, not to this guy, Santana, who is on call? So this entire protocol management and handling at a large scale, this is going to be become important as soon as the first kind of stable communication exchange happens on, a, on one quantum network at a productized level. This is a very important area. I personally don't think there is enough work that is being done here. And this is where all these machine learning quantum inspired methods that I mentioned first comes into play. And why I mentioned quantum inspired, and please stop me if I'm rambling on, and you will ask some questions. <laughs> but 
Why I mentioned quantum inspired is this has become extremely important during the last six months to one year because companies like NVIDIA, they have come up with libraries to support HPC, high-performance computing, to simulate quantum-inspired computing and machine learning. NVIDIA have put up quantum, I think, Last, last as a library, I think last month or maybe six weeks or two months back, they also came out with that with, with, with hardware which supports such simulations. Now, one of the biggest challenges, be that quantum computing, be that machine learning, be that communication today, is quality of qubits. Physical quality of qubits, be that superconducting, be that photonic, is not very good. It's it's lots of errors in, in photonic area. We have with other problems, not not so much at the physical physical errors, but there are some other challenges. So, one of the things that people always come up with, for example, uh, they say, "Okay, understand all these benefits. It's not available today. So, why are we really interested?" The answers are coming out of there. That hey, we can do this today. The massive benefits in drug discovery, financial industry. From a business perspective, no other sector is more lucrative than finance. And they are actually looking at it actively. Well, actually, another another industry that drives new technology is defense as well. So defense and, and, and finance, you're absolutely right, are going to be key initial drivers in terms of investment. But hey, let me take a step back for a second. So you mentioned the, the, the two by two matrix that I'm familiar with. I just want to quickly walk through it from my point of view. So classical and classical, really, it's about in, in, inspired algorithms and simulation, right? Yep. CQ is where we are today, where we've got quantum computers running algorithms, which are, or circuits, or something in an annealing system, which is mapped and, and doing some optimization in the classical world. And this, this, CQ is classical data. So we take classical data and we embed it into quantum computers through the use of, there are various ways, yeah. feature mapping and, and, and various ways of encoding up a PCA. There are various ways of doing this. So that's CQ basically. And the way I see those two, and definitely CQ, is basically it's the classical machine learning process, leveraging yeah. a quantum algorithm to optimize part of it. And the QC is the other way around where it's using the machine learning in the classical world to improve something happening in the quantum. Now, where it gets really confusing is where you were talking about quantum machine learning, or I guess this is in the Q, Q, Q world, where you're using quantum computing to optimize um, quantum data. But at the moment, from what I understand, all, mach all quantum machine learning is born out of the classical world in terms of the, the machine learning algorithms run on a classical computer with elements done in the quantum world. Is that right? Or are there... I think, I, think, I, I think that depends. That's my personal opinion. And you are right. Most of the algorithms in quantum machine learning or optimization have been inspired by classical machine learning simply because... That's how science works, or science or technology works. You start to build on something that you already know and diverse from there. 
So yes, to, to some extent, that's true. The last two that you mentioned, QC and QQ, are quite interesting because if you take quantum data, machine learning for physics or machine learning for chemistry, um, and, and if you take quantum data and apply classical machine learning to them, things can get computationally very expensive and costly. For example, molecular modeling, how to model a penicillin molecule with classical computing costs you something like 10 to the power 48 bits. The quantum world, that would be 286 qubits or something. And you're right in saying that a lot of these are inspired by, by classical machine learning algorithms that that's exist today. A lot of these algorithms, but, but variational quantum algorithms and variational quantum eigensolvers, for example, these are all hybrid, so to speak, classical quantum mix. They came out early days of quantum computing because of lack of depth in quantum circuits, right? So lack of depth in quantum circuits due to a limited availability of qubits, number one. Number two, physical quantum circuits are very noisy right now. So all these factors, and there are several other factors, what they did is they said, okay, get decomposition is a challenge. Let's do something. Let's reduce the circuit, quantum circuit to a small size, get a classical output, and then fit this back to the next circuit, and then the next circuit, and the next circuit. And then and that kind, that's kind of becomes a hybrid model. I have a, a bit of a softball question. It's not such a complicated question, but it's something that occurred to me like very quickly working in this topic of quantum machine learning is where would you draw the line of quantum machine learning and classical machine learning? For example, we have this two by two matrix and we have C's at the top and the Q's at the bottom. So there's a lot of ways to draw this line of separation. And that, for me, it was so clear how to draw that line. <laughs> so what we concluded actually, and let's see if you agree with this, is anything that does something quantum, uses a quantum model anywhere, we call quantum machine learning. No matter if it's using neural networks classically and have a piece of quantum somewhere, that's quantum machine learning. Like one you know, qubit worth of <laughs> information in the machine learning model, and now that's QML. And I don't know if that's a generally agreed upon no, you are absolutely right. I do agree with you right now. That's where the industry is. And that's why, you know, once quantum inspired methods are coming into play, because basically, if you look at most, how most quantum neural networks, adversarial networks are implemented, I just actually sent a paper out somewhere on, on, on QGAN using uh, real life financial data. The, the general part, I use the quantum circuit, but the discriminator part, you have options of using quantum circuits or classical machine learning. I use classical because frankly, I don't get paid for the research. I'm doing it on my own time. I don't want to spend too much money. I don't know if able to run this on, on physical hardware because physical hardware right now will offer a lot of errors. And this you can see if you run it, run something on a simulator without naming any vendors. I have tested this out on at least two, three different vendors right now. If you, on, on Amazon Bracket, for example, if you run it on a simulator and if you run the same thing on the physical qubits, you see the difference in results, right? So that's where actually, going back to what I was rambling about, quantum-inspired computing has become so important all of a sudden because people have realized that 
finance, defense, drug discovery, very high-powered and critical industries, climate change. Why climate change? It brings me back to the machine learning for physics again. For example, the Mars Rover 2, that's right now on, on Mars, they actually have quantum code there from DOF systems to optimize and model the weather pattern on Mars. I went for a DOF training back in 2019, and the gentleman who was actually doing it hands-on from NASA was sitting beside me. So I'm 100% sure it's going to go on it. But why, why do people do weather patterns would prefer to use a quantum computer to optimize weather patterns and when a classical. It's been done for years and years, decades on, on classical computers. That's because it's computationally very expensive. You know, to put that kind of resource on, on, on a spacecraft may or may not have been productive. So this is a very important thing because as industries are looking at what's more sustainable, you look at generative AI, huge hype right now. It is broken the, the Gartner hype <laughs> ceiling completely. <laughs> yeah, this, this is going to be one of my questions, right? And actually, it, it, it leads on from, first of all, Steve, I just wanted to say your question was, made me laugh because the whole point of a two by two matrix is it's supposed to simplify things. But I love the fact that in this case, it still didn't make it clear enough. There's still too many question marks in all of the boxes. I love that. But yeah, coming on to large language models, is there a, a, an applicability of some form of quantum machine learning for large language models, which is different to other machine learning? Or is it just seen as another form of galvanizing the machine learning that's running on a classical system by doing the optimization part? I'm wondering whether because if large language models use tokenization and so on, maybe there's different benefits there. That, that is a good question. So first of all, quantum NLP is an active area of research, and there are some published papers on that. You can cite that, some very well-reputed published papers. I'm not saying there is a benefit. So I'm very careful. You'll notice that so far I've been very careful not to mention the phrases quantum speed up or quantum advantage. I'm not doing that. So yeah, because I'm very conscious that this is an active area of research. And I'll, I'll struggle to back these words up. Uh, so one thing is quantum NLP is an active area of research, number one. Number two, as we speak today, quantum-inspired methods boosted by HPC, high-performance computing, be that supercomputers, be that GPU-driven, as NVIDIA uh, is doing, is very much a realistic possibility to actually cut down the computational costs on generative AI type models. If we look at how much does chat GPT in its current form cost, it costs over $100,000 a day, every day. Even in its current kind of limited format. Google Bard, if rumors are to be believed, a search done by Google Bard costs over eight to 10 times more than a keystroke search on Google search engine. Right, And this cost comes out of GPU, usage of GPU server space. And, and this is exploding, basically. Right, So this is where quantum-inspired machine learning should become powerful because they can cut down 
on this expansion, use the simulation to cut down on the GPU usage, cut down on the server usage, and actually give a benefit, if not from quantum speed up or advantage, but from the from a point of view of sustainability and maybe scalability. That's where the, I think that's where the near-term benefit is, and that's where these companies are actually looking at. Because again, waiting for error-minimized physical quantum platforms at least five years. And then every year people say five years. And for the last five years, every year people say five years. And that's something I know from personal experience. So I, I, I still say that's, that, that's another five years or maybe three to five years, I don't know. But what do we do to that? Do we just sit around and then see if it happens or not? No, there are options where we can actually leverage some form of quantum machine learning, as you said, and apply to industry, apply to climate change, apply to finance, to defense, whatever you have it. Yep. I'm also curious about this other, it's not directly related, but you mentioned the hype cycle of quantum machine learning. And I've been following it loosely for the last couple of years. I don't work on it directly, but when I first saw quantum machine learning, you see a lot of excitement, a lot of research papers, and now it's generally calming down. I think one reason for that is was that CQ problem of getting the classical data into the quantum computer is very difficult to overcome, maybe impossible. But also, I think people are just starting to get more realistic. And I wonder, what's your perspective? Like, do you also see the trend just starting to, to flatten out? Maybe the hype is becoming more realistic. I agree with you that the whole point of getting classical data into a quantum algorithm, you have to go through these states, this basically feature mapping, this state transformation, encoding, amplitude encoding, or state encoding, whatever form you take, that is an additional step, right? And if you look at any realistic study where they actually publish the code, publish the results, not just things, there are some, a lot of papers who claim quantum advantage. You look at the data, you ask, okay, so I get about the same performance as a get out of classical machine learning from using a bunch of classical data. So why use quantum machine learning? What's my advantage there? If you are introducing an additional step in the data processing, right? And B, if your end result doesn't give you anything substantial, why do it? It doesn't make any sense. I completely agree with that. There are some very marginal cases, specifically perhaps in, in, in aerodynamics or I, don't know, I mentioned weather patterns. So that's where aerodynamics comes in, where maybe the computational cost can be cut down to some extent using quantum optimization. But again, that is not something that, in my opinion, should be viewed upon as a quantum advantage or quantum speed up. It's purely from a point of view of basically cutting down your computational complexity. And, and to that end, there are some problems which are, again, which are academic right now, mostly academic. For example, some NP-hard problems that can actually be solved, I'd say, with far less computational cost on quantum optimization than in classical computing, traveling salesman, 
So that is where supply chain comes in, next cut problems, etc. Certain problems, there is some merit to use this, even though the data is classical. For example, I, I did this uh, demo of a traveling salesman problem on a D-Wave uh, simulator on my laptop, actually, in 2021, I was doing a presentation. I did a traveling salesman for all the states in the United States, basically. So some guy goes around from state to state, and what is the shortest possible time that he can actually do it? On my laptop, with running a D-Wave simulator, it, it takes less than two minutes. But if you try to do it classically on my 16-inch laptop, it will not be done in 16, you know, under two minutes. That's clear. One point there, though, I, I know what you mean, but the optimal problem for the traveling salesman for 50 states, I'd say, that I agree is very difficult to solve. But would you say that the simulator is also finding the absolute optimal state? To, I, I'm not sure how the, it works on the annealer, but... But there are such classical approximations as well that don't use any quantum that could also improve the runtime of traveling salesman potentially. Uh, uh, so maybe like just to be completely fair, are they yeah, solving yeah. the same problem? That's absolutely true. The whole point I'm trying to make is, and this is a very sim simplistic example, but the whole point I'm trying to make is there are areas or very specific areas where there could be some advantage because certain optimization problems and mind you, I'm saying optimization because of generalizing that every machine learning problem is at the end of the day an optimization problem. So you have to have an optimizer at the end of your code. So certain platforms, Anila specifically, they do one thing and one thing very well, and that's optimization. And yes, there are some specific problems that they do very well. So there are some areas of promise right now, but you are absolutely right. This is a major issue, the processing of classical data into quantum domain. That entire encoding side of things is an additional step. That takes a lot of benefits, especially mm -hmm. if you're doing image analysis. You, you take image data, and if you try to, A, you have to reduce it right now because there aren't enough qubits around to simulate 27 by or 28 by 28 images, whatever they are. And you do image reduction, then you do state transformation, and then or state or state or amplitude encoding. And you know, by the time you've done, <laughs> done that, a classical image would be done. Right? Yeah. But I guess always yeah. it comes down to when we're looking for speed ups and QML or improvements, we always should compare to the state of the art classical too, right? So like traveling salesman, for example, can't compare the brute force search to potentially optimized version or approximation version. So, I mean, the, the issues of putting classical data into the annealer, that's already going to cause, <laughs> I don't know, I'm not familiar with annealing, but if I, let's say, instead think about the superconducting qubit rate to encode the information using logic gates, which as like you said, it's going to take probably the majority of the qubit lifetime just to put the data into the system. But then the publishing the results, I'm always scared about, okay, this has a, a exponential advantage over Brute force search, but brute force search is nowhere near the state of the art or something. So I always have to be careful of saying, looking deeply for the classical, give them a fair criticism and not say, okay, we take the worst classical algorithm and compare it to the best quantum and there's an exponential gap. But, and I think we saw some results like that in the coming days. Like, I think this is where quantum inspires stemmed from, is trying to find the best classical algorithm to compare against the quantum 
And what happened was actually in the classical case, you can do things based on the quantum that make the runtime much better. And now there's no more gap. And that yeah. happened, I think, two or three times. And big uh, controversies came from that. <laughs> but oh, not controversies, but lots of news and lots of excitement. And, and that's absolutely true, Stephen, because it depends on the data. Very important. It depends on the problem that we are trying to solve. And it depends on what what the end goal is. What is it that, that you're looking at? So for example, in an annular, there are no circuits. So you're basically looking at the energy. So you take the, so basically for the, going back to the TSP problem, I would just define 50 or 49 addresses for the states of US, text file, and encode that into a Hamiltonian for a Lagrangian. And that in turn gets mapped into the qubit energy levels. And then it's just energy level optimization. And that, that's where it comes out. Hence, certain annulars, for example, they just do one thing, it's optimization, but they do it very well because there is no problem with gate errors and gate decomposition, etc. So there are other kinds of challenges, obviously. But yeah, from a point of view of quantum-inspired or high-performance computing, boosted quantum computing, even if you look at a summit supercomputer for, let's say, Oak Ridge National Laboratory, that is, I think, theoretically capable of performing up to 10 to the power 17 single precision floating point operations per second. Okay. Now, to compute 2 to the power 63 equivalents of 2 by 2 matrix multiplication, as an example, would be a complexity of something like 2 to the power 56, if my math in my head is still correct. So at 100% utilization, it would take some just a few seconds to compute to compute a full simulation, right? To store a full state of 53 qubits, we will need, by this calculation, 72 petabytes of storage. So when we map this into the RAM that Summit has and the sockets, et cetera, that it has, because obviously it's a supercomputer, we should expect that the simulation should encounter very high communication overhead, right? Moving data from permanent storage into RAM and vice versa. So, so th these are areas that people are looking at. And IBM, I think, has found, found a way to minimize data transfers. I think somebody called, I think it, there's a paper by Pignolls from 2019, where this is described. But yes, this is an exciting area of actually looking at stuff and trying to get some benefits out of all these studies of quantum algorithm that has come out of through all these years. Sorry if I'm rambling, my apologies. No, that's why we're here. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so a slightly higher level question, and no doubt it will end up in some deeper conversations. To me, machine learning tends to fall into a few different buckets, right? You've got reinforcement learning, supervised and, and unsupervised learning. Do you think there's, how does quantum benefit them differently? Or is it that they, there's the fact that they are all algorithms of some form means they'll be able to benefit from quantum? Is there a kind of clear divide there? Yeah, so... In, in quantum space, actually, there are equivalent algorithms in almost 
everything you mentioned. <laughs> for example, for support vector machines, there is a QSVM. So for SVM, there's a QSVM, one of support vector machine. As Stephen pointed out, what is basically being done right now is you take classical data, you encode it in quantum, some form of quantum state or amplitude or whatever else. And then you basically just run a quantum optimizer, or if you want, depending on platforms, not all platforms can do that. But basically, that's where your quantum perspective comes in. Other than that, it is basically a classical thing going on with a quantum encoded chunk in it. Being the, there's also something called quantum neural networks. So... I don't think it has been clearly defined what a quantum neural network is, but you know there are quantum analogs in literature that is proposed for quantum neurons, CNN con- convolutional neural networks, recurrent neural networks, etc. There's a there's one interesting area where I think financial world actually has taken up is quantum generative adversarial networks, QGANs. These are separate from QNNs because the generating modeling is emerging as one of the most interesting ways that some quantum algorithms can be applied to ML. And that is purely because of the intuition that quantum computers can generate probability distributions for which classical computers struggle to generate samples. Okay, so this is intuitive. Depending on the paper or the implementation or the research and the data and the use case, so there's a lot of factors there, a QGAN may use a classical or quantum neural network or both for both the generator and the distributor. For example, I just mentioned the paper of recent paper of mine. I used uh, Qiskit for circuits for the generator part, but for the discriminator part, I just use classical algorithms. So why this could be exciting, maybe, is this feels more straightforward way to connect quantum computing to classical ML without having to wait for fault-tolerant quantum platforms. So this is, again, this is very new thought process, maybe three months or maximum six months also. This can change three months from now. But there are formal proofs for quantum kernels that they may be able to yield an advantage. Again, this is not experimentally proven, but these are theoretical proofs. I think where quantum machine learning and algorithms are is people are basically thrashing out things as Stephen said, that there was a hype curve and now it's coming down, which is normal. It happens with every possible technology that comes into play. For quantum machine learning, one of the most prominent drawbacks is, is what's known as hitting the barren plateaus. So this is when basically the number of qubits in a circuit, as they increase, any gradients with respect to the parameters of that circuit tends to decay exponentially. So you're basically, the training of quantum neural networks becomes a challenge because these are gradient-based algorithms. And then if it starts to decay exponentially, it basically gets stuck. 
you don't get any benefits out of that. Like it, it's just whereas on a classical layer, if you have a gradient descent algorithm and you, if you have bumps, you can do pa parametrized optimization there and take that thing out of the local minima and uh, try to push it down to the global minima. So that's that kind of things we know how to do it. In quantum world, that still is a bit of a challenge to achieve, as as simplistic as that may sound. <laughs> I tried to think about how does this whole topic come back to networks and communication. Yeah. Fantastic. My personal opinion is, and this is strictly my opinion from working in machine learning and stuff, is if you, and then, and I'll again go back and mention Arilink and, and Arilink platforms. What anything and non optimizers, what optimizers do basically is use combinatorial algorithms. At the end of the day, you have something and that's where the kind of optimization comes in. You look at a classical network from 20 years back running OSPF is Dijkstra algorithm based on combinatorial math. That's exactly where the benefit should come from, in my opinion. And that's where, that's why I got interested into into annulars and combinatorial algorithm about three, four years back. Because in my head, again, going back to the analogy of quantum machine learning coming out of classical machine learning, optimization of networks should be inspired by how networks are being optimized in classical world as well. Yes, that's why I mentioned these papers of sensor network classification of, with SVM by Zhang and Zhuang is that's exactly, I think, what they're trying to do. They are using uh, VQS, that's fine. But personally, I think quantum data, when it comes to quantum sensors, or whether it comes from your quantum network node, let's say there's a quantum computer sitting at the end, it's, it's quantum data. So step one, day one, is to look at how we can optimize that either using Annealers as optimizers, or take a page out of Zhang and Zhuang and use hybrid algorithms. So that's my take on it. That's that should be step step one to, 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 to try that out actually, and that's something I've been very interested in doing. But it's very hard for me to get classical networking data, I know, big enough to actually <laughs> try anything like that. <laughs> so you can actually do VM is binary classification. That's what. Zhang and Zhong's paper has done, but it doesn't have to be binary. It, it can be some other algorithm. It can be something else, and, and you just run the quantum version. That's fine. And the, the, I guess the whole topic of machine learning in communication networks, some of the, the problems that that's kind of a topic I don't know much about. What topics in classical communication networks can machine learning help with? And then on top of that, could we use quantum to do something as well? This is a very good question. Ultimately, the quantum machine learning or quantum hybrid classical machine learning may become very important because as you correctly said, machine learning is resource intensive. You, you, you run it on any classical network, wherever machine learning, AI, et cetera. These are extremely uh, resource in, uh, intensive, especially if you're running unsupervised learning, for example, in a large scale network, you don't know all the data, everybody who is working, wherever, thousands of users, and you'd likely not run supervised learning there because you may not have data that you know, data that you can train the network on. So you are probably will be will end up running 
unsupervised learning or semi-supervised learning. You know some data, and there is some unknown, but unsupervised or semi-supervised, your, 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 your data thing will explode as compared to supervised learning. And that in turn will take up resources. And in a classical world, this costs money. This is not cheap. And again, going back to our discussions before, this is where actually you can get some serious benefits using quantum inspired, be that quantum inspired, be that quantum machine learning, whenever the hardware becomes available, that's where you can get some benefits. I would think in answer to your question, Steve, as well, there's two different types of areas where machine learning could be and is used in networks at the moment, right? There's the not so real time use cases where perhaps there's occasional calculations made, optimizations, maybe even preparatory sets of changes to be made in the network over time. And then there's the real time stuff, which is where things get a lot more interesting. And as you said, Santana, the, the, the amount of data just ramps up almost exponentially because you're receiving so much from all the sources. I think the way you described it, it sounded like you were referring to an enterprise network with lots of end users, but what about uh, a network using satellites and endpoints in the air and um, things moving on the ground? In terms of real-time optimizations, something like that, um, then I would think there has to be a benefit because that's the kind of thing where we're really pushing the capabilities of um, classical methods at the moment. But the, the, the machine learning techniques in networks at the moment, they're I don't want to do them any injustice because there's some really amazing stuff out there. But ultimately, they're looking at historical data and they're looking at a snapshot in time of current data and they're making some intelligent predictions. So it's about extending the amount of time that the prediction is made from and also to be able to do it in real time on a device, perhaps, which isn't connected to a HPC cluster. It might be in an aircraft or it might be in a satellite or something. That's where, that's the state of the art, I think, pushing the boundaries with the technology. Yeah. And one problem I, I remember reading about when it comes to large infrastructure is, for example, problem of predictive maintenance. When you need to go and maintain your infrastructure again, is it broken? When will it break? When should you replace the components? And I think machine learning is involved in this problem. This is something I don't really read about, but yeah, the networks also require this predictive maintenance <laughs> approach. I wonder. Is it, yeah, maybe it's not something people explore, but it could be something. No, you, you, you are right. You are right. Uh, for example, there is this concept of self-healing network. So self-optimizing network as well. It's uh, another term. Yeah, exactly. And there's a massive use case in, in security because especially semi-supervised semi semi-supervised learning, so many malware, so many threats, so many fingerprints, so many threat signatures. And... So many more out there that we don't know about. So there is an obvious use case. And this is where basically in, in, in mainstream security, XDR, X as in anything is coming into play because you put it on, you know, you use machine learning in security. So the tool or the model rather is trained on everything that you know, all the trends that you know. So it, it can stop the known threats, but there are unknown threats and they might go through. But once they go through, it learns about the unknown threats and then get trained itself and then protects it next thing. And then there are certain other solutions where, where they use kind of reinforcement learning. And if any threat 
if any, for example, signature appears to be suspicious, they score them. So they score six. If six kind of suspicious, they might raise an alert. If it's seven, then they may sandbox it to look at it. People look at it. Eight, nine, ten doesn't go through at all. And then kind of that, that kind of stuff. And these are, again, they learn from this experience. When they sandbox it, they, they look at it. They, they learn the signatures train itself. And in future, they know, okay, this is lock for j which is what happened to my lab here. And this is lock for j This is Donora Hostel Center's lab. So the machine learning algorithm in that situation would have learned Santana's uh, chink skills and not up to I'd come back from vacation, actually. He caught a lot of people that one. That was bad, yeah. So, they like to drive back four hours to put the patches on my lab at Chile Atlantis or let my family there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we all suffered for that one, that's for sure. Steve, any tangents you'd like to bring? I, I want to see like how the things I work on, for example, communication quantum networks are influenced by quantum machine learning and potentially where where's the direction for that? Uh, so things I'm thinking about are noise mitigation in quantum infrastructure, quantum hardware. And the question I is always coming down, do we need the quantum for that or, or not? Can we do this mitigation error detection error modeling using purely classical infrastructure? But then when it comes to the quantum hardware, maybe it is better to use the, you know, the QC <laughs> approach. Yes, I agree with you because eventually, I know it's easier for us who actually are familiar with classical machine learning and AI to say, okay, we'll just use the classical stuff and be done with it. But eventually you have to think of cost. And these costs, we're talking about industrial solutions here. So these costs will ultimately have to be paid by the customers. So we need to think about the business viability of that as well. So from point of view of all that, yes, I, I agree with you. That is where quantum algorithms will also be a potential use case. Be that quantum inspired, be that quantum platform driven five years, six years from now, whatever it is, but that's definitely one of the areas where you can leverage that as well. Correct. I think there are some papers around who are using reinforcement learning as well for, for yeah, correct. I'm sure you've seen them as well. So I'm, I'm interested in that myself. I'm out of questions at the moment. I could probably come up with some more. But... Yeah, I'm just asking chat GPT if it's got any questions for you. Uh, <laughs> just see what it says. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> yeah, it's talking about data, complexity. Yeah. Real-time data streams, dynamic learning scenarios. Yeah, that's one that I touched on. One of the things that actually is very important, and I don't often see this in the books or literature that I read, and that is actually related to implementation, especially in gate-based computing. How do you implement? When you implement, do you consider how things are being resolved at that level? I'll try to give a quick example. So implementing gates as potentially very large matrices and constructing operators via matrix products is of complexity or end to the power eight or something, I can't remember. This is a worst case scenario, I admit, but this entire situation becomes intractable actually. And performance starts to suffer when you have like more than eight qubits. That's it. There's a lot of paper I read and literature I go through where they don't really explore 
the implementation challenges of quantum algorithms and they, because because this varies from platform to platform an algorithm that's very efficient on any link for example for example kubo may not be that efficient on a gate based environment and implementation can be a nightmare as well i mean implementation what kind of platform it is so i, I read a lot of literature but i don't really specifically see this aspect being addressed, but this is also something very important because it directly affects the behavior of the hardware that you are actually using to do the computation. It's ultimately up to the, 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 the vendor of, of, of each of the computing environments that are out there with, based on the different technologies to then go and test these kinds of things, or at least for their customers to, to bring their use cases that that leverage some of the new theory and so on. But I guess there's, there isn't a body out there that would be doing that kind of thing because there's no standards at the moment, pretty much. Physics is all you got. Yeah, that's it. And my question was actually, so when you think about the physical implementation, especially at the gate level, one thing I'm wondering actually is, do we have that continuous degree of freedom along the block sphere to actually manipulate these systems? It seems to me like you need finite precision to code the... The gate pulse, right? So at, do you even get gradient descent in that case? <laughs> what happens if you at, have continuous at gate level right now, I agree. At gate level right now, there are limitations. There's simply RNT of qubits around. And also how the qubits are connected, they're connected in one way in, in IBM where they, where they came out of the concept of transpilers. And their qubit connection is different in Rigeli, for example, even the both are speculating. So all these factors comes into play when, when you start to implement that. And people who are implementing, they need some knowledge of what kind of hardware is in there. Otherwise, you are in a classical computer, I write a Python code. I don't even worry about when this code is going, which bit it's affecting, how it's affecting. I just write it, I'm gone. And it works. Mm-hmm. So the quantum computing hardware domain is far from that space. Yeah. Because especially when I think about quantum machine learning, you have your quantum circuit, you put some parameterized unitary gate those values are just real numbers. They can go any direction. When you put it in the quantum computer, you need the microwave pulse, which has a, a cool up and a cool down, or heat up and a cool down process. So you can't get so much a narrow beam. And therefore, you don't get the continuous degrees of freedom. You don't have intervals, eventually. You can only pick. Yeah, it's definitely hardware dependent because you need some sort of precision in your operations. But then the question is, can you do machine learning at all without that ability to have? Hence, very good question. Very nice. (laughs) And this is where we are. uh, I was going with the hybrid quantum classical algorithms. This is Mm. why you have VQEs and VQAs, special quantum algorithms, which are all hybrid, basically. They are none of them are fully quantum. And all these factors into that decision, not just circuit depth, but also what you mentioned, right? These are limitations that exist today. And I think there are some companies, for example, working on basically separating the circuits and then the, the computation kind of coding platform from the circuit. So you don't have to worry about if it's IBM or if it's Brigetti or something. You can just do something on a classic platform. It gets drilled down. Yeah. Otherwise, you have to be very aware of the platform you're using and then what you're doing on it and what, what your code is going to do to your teammates. You really need to know the physics. Otherwise, it's you may never get an advantage. <laughs> so. 
piles yeah. enough studies or work on this. Most literature you read, they just give you their results and explaining. For example, there is this very well-known paper that came out in the financial industry from JP Morgan and IMQ, I think. And they treated some live financial data. That's what got me interested in QCBM, actually, on financial data, quantum circuits, bone machine. And they claim the quantum advantage. But the claim is there. <laughs> you need to look at the code. Again, let's come down to what's fair. What's the advantage over what? That's always my question. <laughs> exactly. Advantage over the best classical algorithm or the worst one? <laughs> so, exactly. So I agree with that completely. Was it a comparison issue in that one? Was it that they were comparing something against a manual process? Or Nah, it's just a thing. They said we used some classical optimizers. So they used which is basically gate-based computing. And then they said they did they optimize that output with annealing, but they are, the details are very sketchy. Yeah, those are papers that interest me because I, I try to drill down to see where and how they got that quantity. As enthusiastic as I am about quantum machine learning myself, you, 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 need, you need some validation to, to convince yourself. Okay, slightly different topic. We have touched on the hype cycle. Thanks for bringing it up. I just wanted to thoughts from both of you that the hype around machine learning at the moment is bringing a bit of fear into some people and some of that's irrational, some of it isn't. When you add the word quantum on the front, it makes it sound as the hyper futuristic, powerful version of machine learning, I think. I guess just some thoughts about the societal impact and possibly the kind of negative connotations that could be made from the name just on its own. I was just thinking about it and and lately what I'm thinking is as soon as you put quantum in front of anything, you might even be safe to assume it's going to be worse. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be any better. It's probably going to be, as soon as you put the Q in front of it, it's 50 years away and noisy. So maybe it makes it safer, less threatening when you put quantum in front of it. That's good I mean, to hear that you think that as the quantum physicist, but, but what about the, the general public? Maybe we just need to keep banging a drum. True. It's the general public. It's, quantum is slow. Yeah. <laughs> and may never come. Especially the, the quantum leap is not a big jump, right? <laughs> it's yeah. the smallest possible jump you can make, I guess, if you want to quantize leaps. <laughs> but but generally, I, I agree with you. It's It sounds more scientific. It sounds more loaded term, quantum. And it makes people scared, even more scared. So we have quantum computers that will break security of the internet. We need to change everything. Things like that. We have algorithms that will change xyz field in the next two years and <laughs> people promise these things and yeah. i don't know if it's true but this there's two sides of the story the hype is in some sense necessary because it brings attention it brings funding it brings jobs without the hype it's too dull and people don't get interested in it at all but then they have to keep the expectations real at least to the people who are working on it <laughs> or putting money into it, let's say. You don't want to trick your investors. You don't want to trick, <laughs> not too much at least. <laughs> at least give them some hope. <laughs> Maybe the, the timeline is half as long as it should be, but something should be possible. It shouldn't promise impossible things. Yeah, some great points. I had somebody else talking about a similar topic recently saying that the industry at the moment is in that education and preparation phase. Right? Correct. It's, it's more about spreading the word, trying to bring up the number of people, increase the skills in the market, um, improve awareness and so on. We're not at the point where you've got more of a kind of scaling issue and it's about commoditization and all that kind of stuff. It's still about education and planning. 
that's true. Where we are, I think, is when I was very little, there where God's gift to computing was a Commodore 64. <laughs> so that's, I think that's, that's where quantum computing is right now. But it's uh, not even you know, there. You, you, Commodore 64, come on, you, you could go to the shop and buy yeah. one. Yeah, back in the days, you could. Now you can get a two two qubit uh, computer from uh, quantum computer from SpinQ. You can order it over Amazon. They, it'll get delivered. It's two two qubits, educational only, but it's a hardware, and you run on the your laptop. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's where it's going. But then again, if you consider that people had Commodore sixty four as God's gift to computing back, if I remember, in nineteen eighty seven or eighty six, and how much computation developed in the next 20 years, classical computing, how fast it became. Once you get the first step in, once you know the starting point, then it doesn't take long. But they have to break into that starting point. Anyway, going back to your question, I agree with you. For most people, quantum AI, given the fear about normal AI, is massive. But I think that it's a, there, there's a, a other side of the coin, that, and that is all these AI platforms, classical AI platforms, generative AI or whatever else is going on, the more complex the models get, more wider the attack surface becomes from a purely security perspective. And I'm not just saying that DDoS kind of attacks, which corrupts the system, I'm saying poisonous data in there. If, if someone finds a way to feed your classical AI uh, model or the, or the data lake or whatever you have with corrupted data and does it quietly without being detected, you are done. You are basically end up training either noise or poor data or whatever. It could be your competitor. And the biased, at the end of the biased data, yeah. biased outcomes. Exactly. Why the AI is uh, making decisions in a particular way that you, it's interesting. Exactly. They can manipulate. Yeah. They can manipulate the bias. From that perspective, security perspective, a quantum AI, a quantum environment should offer far, far better security. If not by quantum encryption, just by default. So that's my take on it. Okay. If it gets into the hands of a mad scientist, it might cause some problems. <laughs> but, but this is all the gift of technologies. It's hard to stop. That's human nature, unfortunately. Yeah, nice thought to end it on. Um, <laughs> brilliant. Listen, I've had a fantastic uh, time talking to you, Santana. Thank you very much for joining Thank you. us. Thanks for having me. Steve, okay. do you have any closing comments? Oh, well, that's it for me. Thanks a lot, Santana, for this. It was uh, very educational for me. I dabbled in the QML topics, but never really heard it from the source. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that big a source, but thank you. Thank you for the kind yeah, words. And I'm sure we're only scratching the surface as well. Yeah, lots more to think about. Thank you, Santana. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain, especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So... Much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform, and I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word. It would really help us out.